everybody. Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we try to keep you in contact with what's going on in Israel and give you some insight into what's going on behind the headlines. And I am Michael Unterberg, once again remembering my own name. I am here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Going great, Mike. Winter's coming back. It's getting cold, cloudy, and rainy. All right. And for the traffic update, we have here... uh, our good pal. Hasn't been here in a while. Where have you been, Benji? Disneyland. No, I haven't been in Disneyland. <laughs> You've been busy running around Tel Aviv, but Benji Davis is here, so you know that means a good episode. I would just like to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way before we enter in today's topic. Uh, there were some complaints from some of our listeners about the audio quality of the previous episode. I think those were legitimate, and we apologize. We're working things through. Uh, we are not professional audio people. We are teachers trying our best. So we thank you for powering through. Thank you for listening. I was a little center in the last episode. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It was, it was from a few people from a few different directions. So uh, we're working on it. We're doing our best. Hopefully we'll avoid things like that in the future. But uh, we really do appreciate the support anyway, and uh, we apologize that it didn't come out so right. We are back to our... We're back to Bagel Cafe. That's right. And our coffee drinking... Anyone? Oh, Alan's drinking coffee. Mine hasn't arrived yet, so it'll probably arrive at some point during the episode. And we thought that for this week, we would do a uh, listener request conversation. We had a request from one of our listeners, Shifra, who was a student in Midrash Harover last year. And she wanted us to talk about a particular issue with uh, the West Bank, and that is, is Israel's uh, position in the West Bank legal and are Jewish settlements in the West Bank legal? Because people often say that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank is illegal and Jews living in the West Bank is illegal. Now, we are not lawyers, but we will hash out some of those issues, and I imagine it will also sort of bleed into other West Bank-related matters fair to say okay what are the when should we separate them when we say the israeli occupation of the west bank what do we mean exactly why why do we what do we mean or what does the world mean or what is you're assuming that we say that yeah what does the terminology let's start with let's define our terminology okay so when we're talking a few assumptions when we say Israeli occupation of the West Bank. So there are those that say Israeli occupation of the West Bank, and they could be just implying that Israel's military presence in the territory that it takes over, liberates, acquires, occupies, conquers during the Six-Day War um, connotes a military occupation since it took it over with its military and currently still controls the majority of said territory um, with its military. Um, That being said, to zoom in a little bit, there are then those that will say that it is an occupied territory, an illegally occupied territory, that according to international law, countries cannot take over other countries' territories um, through means of war, and they are arguing that Israel did that, so therefore it's an (coughs) an illegally occupied territory, or because the majority of the population that lives in the West Bank happens to not be citizens of the state of Israel, but are are Palestinians, even if they're living in their own autonomous areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority, because um, the majority of the population there does not have um, self-determination there, then it's an illegally occupied territory. Now, when we, as 
I don't know, say Israeli citizens or Zionists, so we say the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. We may not, and I personally would not be referring to the territory as occupied, I would not call it an occupied territory, but rather a disputed territory, as in the Israeli government has not annexed or applied our sovereignty there, and we still have a big question mark on it. Um, but we say the occupation referred to Israel's military administration in the West Bank, and the Supreme Court of Israel said that there is currently existing in the West Bank a belligerent military occupation, and the people there are protected by the laws of a belligerent military occupation. So Israel protects the basic human individual rights of the Palestinians when it is encountering uh, with the IDF, whether it's at checkpoints and etc. Um, so what we can do is try to debate, well, what is the legitimacy of Israeli populations living there, the legitimacy of the IDF being there, um, and encounters of Palestinians with the IDF, and if that is representing an illegal or a legal occupation, and what that means for those people and for us moving forward. So let me see if I can, that was a brief summary, but let me see if I can brief for it. Israel did not annex the West Bank after it captured it in 1967. Correct. And the Israeli military has overall control over the region, although if you go into Area A, which is a more complex discussion, the Palestinian Authority is in control. But overall, the Israeli military controls it without annexing it and giving the majority of its inhabitants citizenship in the state of Israel. So annexing, just to chime in here as... um Someone wanted us to, to talk about annexing. Annex means applying your civilian law, and in a democracy, would be given the opportunity for citizenship for all those living in the territory that doesn't yet have citizenship, um, living in the territory which now becomes a part of the sovereign state of Israel. Um, so, for instance, I mean, it's incorporating the territory into your state as a full and. Uh, Part of your state. That's what annexing is. And everybody who lives there would be then a citizen of your state. Well, only if it's a democracy. You can annex a piece of territory and not offer up those people up citizenship. Correct, but Germany didn't give the Poles or the Czechs or anyone citizenship. Correct. So what I'm saying is we only say that those people that in a territory, if Israel annexed it, would get citizenship because we're making a... We have a basic assumption that Israel is a democracy. Now we know that, well, because... Israel annexed two territories that it takes over during the 1967 war. Israel annexed East Jerusalem um, de facto in 1967 and then de jure in the 1980. And we annexed um, the Jerusalem Basic Law in 1980. And then in 1981, we also annexed the Golan Heights. Uh, In both instances, we offered up the Arab populations in those territories citizenship, although the majority of them did not take it, which is a whole other conversation. Yeah. Alan, you have a uh, correction or omission? No, I don't have a correction. I think that it, it, it gets we, – we get very much confused in, in the details, I believe. It's really what happens, like, in, in, in internal legal details and not. And I think it goes back to a very, very basic narrative in many different ways. And a narrative that the Jewish people have – again, when we say the Jewish people, I think in general we're talking about consensus here. Um, although we, and we always have to recognize that there are people who, who, who don't agree, in a, especially not only in a democracy, but in the world, there's people on a different spectrum. But the general consensus in the Jewish people, even among those who believe we should be um, giving territory to the Palestinians to set up their own, uh, own state in the West Bank, that the Jewish people have indigenous legal rights to the territory, which was ancient Israel. And therefore... 
Um, therefore, we will, can call those territories disputed territories. Most of the world, I believe, has not accepted that position. Most of the world sees that Israel has does not have um, indigenous or any legal rights to that area, and says that therefore you're occupying it because there, there are you know other people who have the rights to there. I think that that's the the bottom line. So you're saying the coloring the conversation isn't the dispute over legality; it's the dispute over narrative. That the West Bank, what we call Yehuda and Shimron, Judea and Samaria, is is because the Jews and the Palestinians both have claims to it, as both have claims really to pretty much the whole area. This is part of that dispute. Right, and, and actually, that's a great point. Well, so first of all, we go back. I this is like the the I talked about in an earlier podcast, but this is like as we say in Hebrew, the Asimon fell when 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 I came to this realization after the Security Council latest. Um, latest vote resolution on on the territories and realizing that the narrative that the world holds is really not what the Jewish people hold. That, you know, whether America vetoed or didn't or abstained, it doesn't matter because all, all those countries pretty much hold that we don't have rights that. And I think it's because the world has determined the best solution for the problem here is two-state solution. And they've already determined, okay, so this is their state and this is their state, you know, and therefore, um, as long as a person remi- remains in its state, you know, they have legitimacy. Once they go outside of their territory, that, again, the world has already determined, even though it's not practically happened, therefore, it's illegitimate. And in terms of Israelis and Palestinians, neither of us really <laughs> accept that. We both say this is all disputed territory, meaning we, it's mine. <laughs> and, 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 well, and then the proper Israel. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, including Barbaries, exactly. But it is true, in 1967, before the Six-Day War, none of Israel's territory was technically internationally recognized. Israel didn't have any international borders. We had armistice agreements lines with the four Arab states that we neighbor. No, but the right of Jews to a sovereign state in the state of Israel was... Right. The fact that it didn't have well-defined You're talking about a right. That's a basic concept. No, we... Partition plan is not um, the consensus of... Forget partition plan, but in 1940, whatever year it is, Israel's admitted to the UN. So that that's legit. The world has legitimately recognized Israel as a state and those territories that we have at that time. The fact that we the, 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 there are ceasefire lines with our Arab neighbors that's an Arab thing. That's our local thing. But in general, the UN is essentially not essentially saying that we are recognizing you as a state in this area. But as a state with undefined borders, as in those borders are still disputed based on the fact that we are in a state of war with our neighbors. Well, we'd say that. No. We still don't have defined borders with all of our neighbors. Yeah, yeah, but again, that's exactly what I'm saying, because they say no, because the, basically the world is saying now, as long as you're staying in your 49 boundaries, we recognize you. Well, that's when like, you go over it, you're not. Putting, so that's what they're basically... That's what Inna Wolf said uh, on Security Resolution 2334. She said it actually cements West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and the U.S. Embassy can move it there based on the resolution. No, I, I agree with that. But I also think um, in response to... That's the root of the problem when we're looking at it in terms of this, uh, we say that in terms of the territories, is, is, is exactly that. They've accepted that we live, we live in those boundaries, but since we've gone over those boundaries, they're saying you don't, live, you don't have rights to there. And we say, wait a second, but that's, that is the heart of Jewish ancestral history. <laughs> because part of what we're defining it as has to do with our history, as opposed to the world, which is really looking forward and saying, how do we make this work in the future? And so that historical boundary becomes less relevant to us. When they look, and we're not doing a good job explaining why it's still relevant to us. But they talk about it in legal terms, though, and that's why people get confused. 
That's true, and that's what, and that the really was comes out in the legal terms. Exactly, but but, uh, but even the people we're talking about in legal terms are not le- they're they're not legal people here. Then they're just Tom throwing around. Uh, you know, Geneva Convention number four, but they don't really understand the, the details of it and the, de- and, the, and the legal arguments in the, in the Geneva Convention, for Geneva Convention, 1949. They don't, you know, so I, that's why I think... But let's do that, though. Let's do that, though. We had a specific request from a listener yeah. that I think, Shifra, who I think, but I think it's, it's something that, in, in her case, she wanted to review it, but I think for many people, I think it's, a, it's, it's good to... The terms are thrown around all the time that these are, that Israel's occupation is illegal and Israel's settlements are illegal. Let's start with occupation over disputed territories, whatever you want to call it, military administration, terminology. That, that's a valid dispute, by the way. Should I stick to terminology that reflects my political position? Or I'm not going to get caught up in terminology. I'm going to get to the guts of it. But there's no term that is not disconnected from a political position. If you Correct. say military administered territories, occupied territories, disputed territories, West Bank or Judea and Samaria, Palestinian territories, Palestine, land of Israel, no matter what you say, you're stuck being pegged with a specific political you know, opinion. So that's why I understand why people make the argument that the words that I choose, therefore, have to be chosen very carefully to express my political idea. I have a different you don't tactic. Express your political idea. What do you just want to talk about it? Well, my mine is then uh, just forget it. I'm just going to use whatever words are helpful and useful, and I won't care about that. And uh, let's get to the facts behind it. But I but I think both are valid approaches. So I will use the term occupation in and in, in addition to military administration, understanding that it's not. I'm qualifying and saying I'm not expressing a political idea. I'm just using language that is commonly used language without uh, politically advocating one way or another. Let's start with uh, occupation. The now, does you, you, you all UN condemnations do not mean do not create a legal status, do not create a binding international legal problem for the state of Israel. Wagging your finger is not does not a law make. The UN has, however. The Security Council, the General Assembly cannot make, as I understand it, legally. We're not lawyers. Let's just. This is our, yeah, our understanding. What you're saying? No, I'm, I'm just agreeing with oh. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's. This is our amateurs, but very involved, interested amateurs assessment. The UN General Assembly cannot make binding resolutions. The Security Council, however, can, and the binding Security Council resolution that the that, that wasn't was binding. Two four two in nineteen sixty seven. I'm not talking about two four four three. I'm talking about UN resolution two four two in nineteen sixty seven. Wow, all of these numbers just got me confused. Thank you. So, in nineteen sixty seven, in the in the wake of the Six Day War, the UN Security Council got together and wrote a long document. We'll hopefully put a link to it. Not so long. It's readable, especially if you did model UN. The language is familiar to you. But basically what it comes down to is it makes two legal demands. And those two legal demands are that Israel withdraw from territories it conquered in that war. And the second legal demand is that all countries in the region agree upon borders and respect each other's sovereignties in a peaceful, nonviolent way. End, end of belligerency and conflict towards Israel. And recognize legitimacy of all those states in the, in the, in the, in the area of the Middle East. All, all states in the region have to have that recognized legitimacy and safe boundaries. Uh, and I argue, and certainly Tisha's in class, that those wait, two, wait, wait, on, two conditions are, are, are dependent on each other. They're not mutually exclusive. Now, I, I think it's fair to say, hold on, before we go further, and before we explain Israel's side of it, I think it's fair to say 
that Israel has not. Israel has withdrawn from the Sinai. Uh, it's withdrawn from the Gaza Strip, which ends up being like 90% of the land apparently conquered in 67. But it has not withdrawn from the Golan. It has not withdrawn from the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. So that means that Israel is not obeying that law. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that's what people mean when they say the entire occupation is illegal. I think to say it's not a law. It's a, it's a Security Council binding resolution, which is not a law. It's a, again, how does the UN work? And that's what people also consensus. bring in. The UN works on consensus. Correct. The, the, the way that also, and what the other people base all this on is the Geneva Conventions, right? The Geneva, Hold on. the Geneva Convention is really more of an issue when it comes to settlements. But let's. But, but still, the, the, not only. But, but the point is, is that all these international um, agreements, you could say, they work on on the fact that it's consensus that the gov- that the countries agree to be in these bodies and abide by their um, abide by the resolutions, um, and that's how they all and that's how they all work. So. Israel, Israel Bay being a member state of the UN, and I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. Israel Bay being a member state of the UN has agreed to abide by Security Council resolutions when they're binding. Correct. Correct. But again, these, these, these and Israel Israel has not. But the way this works is, uh, so I think you're being too black and white here. Hold because on. Am I being black and white, or isn't this what people are accusing Israel of when they say that the occupation is illegal? Right. You, you re- I, I'm representing that part of the conversation. Yeah, you representing that conversation. I'm not uh, okay. I don't want you to get too sensitive. I know. I no, no, it's not a question of me being sensitive. It's a In, game. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not taking out. Roll and shut your mouth. I'm not taking out my 20-sided die. I just want the listeners to understand that sometimes we play roles in the podcast where I will be uh, representing. Yeah, and I don't want anyone to think. You know, everyone follows now. It wasn't a sensitivity. It was a clarification. Okay, good. He does live in the settlements, and I don't, so we can do that. Yeah, I got the street cred, boys. 242. 242. Again, I would argue 242, as all these international agreements, are frameworks. So 242 is a framework of how to solve the problem. And the framework is belligerency and war stops. Everybody recognizes each in its, in its area, and, and, and they stay in their own states. That, that's the idea to it. So it's not, it's not that – that's why I'm saying it's not that Israel is, is violating a law. It's that Israel saying, okay, we're, we, we agree to this framework. And then every time the other, every time that this framework is initiated, we enter into the process. That's what happens in 1970. Wait, 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 wait. But how do you say Israel agrees to the framework if Israel hasn't withdrawn from the West Bank or the Golan Heights? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because you're, you're, the framework is right. The framework is that Egypt, right? Amar Sadat does an amazing thing in 1978 and says, "I'm ready." And Israel says, "Okay, great, let's talk." And Israel withdraws from territory, uproots settlements, gives up natural resources, oil, natural resources, takes away its its massive um, air force bases in the Sinai, and and gives the land back in terms of the uh, for no belligerence, not only no belligerency, a peace agreement and recognition of each state, transferring of diplomats, transferring of embassies, all those things. Israel recognizes the the framework and and, and invests in it. And when um, and in fact, by the way. When there was overtures from the Syrian government in the 1990s, and again in the 21st century, Israel entered into uh, behind the scenes negotiations. right behind the scenes serious negotiations. Again, they fell apart, but Israel was willing to. Again, in 1993, when the Palestinians said, "Okay, we're ready," Israel said, "Okay, let's talk about it," and entered into these negotiations. And we got through the first stage. The first stage was actually giving over 
uh, autonomous control to the Palestinian Authority. And then in 2000, it fell apart. But that doesn't mean that Israel, right? Every time Israel is is trying to to enter into the uh, into this, Israel accepts the framework and works within the framework. So if I'm understanding, yeah, go ahead. No, say your thing and then I'll say mine. If I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that Israel is seeing the two elements of the framework of the nations respecting each other's borders in a non-belligerent, legitimate recognition of each other's existence as the only way that the other part of it works. And when recognized and when given legitimacy and when given safe borders, Israel withdraws. So Israel is in a very long 50-year process of trying to implement 242 but can't as long as neighbors are denying its legitimate right to safe and secure borders in a recognized country. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. But actually, I never thought about this before, but in 1994, Israel makes peace with Jordan. But Jordan already, for I think seven, six years, had already said, we don't want the West Bank back. So is Jordan in violation of 242? Because... They didn't want their territory. It was Israel no, supposed to nobody, give the territory back? No, because back nobody recognized. No, 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 nobody ever recognized Jordan, other than the UK and I think Pakistan. El Salvador. No, oh, Pakistan. You're right, Pakistan. No. Nobody recognized Jordan, as so the, they're giving up something nobody recognizes is theirs. No, nobody recognized Jordan's right to annex the West Bank, so it was not considered Jordanian territory by international but consensus. Why would the Palestinians have more of a legal right to the West Bank than the Jordanians? Well, let me ask the question in another funny way, there, guys. There, how come? How come you went? How come UN two four two Security Council de- uh, pro- uh, did it even mention Palestinians? That's my question. How come it doesn't demand a Palestinian state? So do you went to okay? Oh, it doesn't mention any country. It mentions Israel. Israel has to withdraw from territories conquered in the in the sixties. Territories occupied, yeah. The second part no, about recognizing it doesn't say Gaza territories to the Egypt. No, it doesn't say where. It doesn't say all territories. It doesn't say what territories. It doesn't say like no, oh, no, you no. to get out of the Golan to Syria. Oh, so you're saying because of um, the ambiguity regarding to whom and what territory, it means it doesn't imply that those territories need to be returned back to the party that held them prior the Six Day War. That's the language of the 242. 242, by, by, the, by that reading, Israel has a demand from 242 to unilateral withdrawal that isn't no. dependent on... Because act. it has to be an end of belligerency for Israel to withdraw from territory. So if there's an end of belligerency, that means there is another protagonist in the story that has to end the belligerency. So then we can say that the Palestinians are a protagonist, and if they give up you know, their belligerency, even though supposedly they have, right, if we've been negotiating with them through Oslo for the last 20-something years, so them technically as an entity, the Palestinian Authority, the problem is parties that have been affiliated with the Palestinian Authority, which have been committed to terror, Yasser Arafat, you know, the PLO, Fatah. So then if I understand... This is in direct contradiction to the way someone like Edward Said uses 242. Edward Said only only mentions the first... Um, the first, uh, the first, first part power, of the second clause, meaning Israel has to withdraw from all the territories because they stole it. Right? They're very clear. You steal something, you have to give it back. Israel stole, it, and then we'll start negotiating. Right? There, there, there. His position, and it's a position that's adopted by many, 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 many in the world, is that is that that Israel has to withdraw without any any kind of discussions and then negotiations continue continue so then of course my question is what are we negotiating yeah. over if we if, if we if we're leaving so then that implies that there's actually something to negotiate over the 67 boundaries well but you guys you guys are arguing that that the pressure to implement 242 should be on arab nations 
to recognize Israel's right to exist and demand safe boundaries for Israel with with full recognition in order to enable Israel. Well, we'll look, but, let, yeah, well, we'll let's look at history. Now that's not so relevant. No, but let's look at history. Let's look at it is relevant because let's now look at history. The Arab nations. No, but let's look at history. When the Arab when when Israel when Israel has met with serious negotiations and been challenged to withdraw from territory and Israel came to the conclusion that peace, that peace was possible it was going to happen we withdrew right so yes so the, if the right when even the pressure is the other the, side even when there was an um uh, intention for an end of conflict from the other side. Unilateral withdrawal from southern Lebanon and Gaza are perfect examples. Southern, southern Lebanon is not the same. That's another kettle of fish. First of all, Israel never claimed that territory. It was only no, for no, security no, reasons, and it wasn't part of 242. No, 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 no. But I'm, what I'm saying is... No, no, no. What I'm getting at is that the Israeli society and the Israeli government has been for unilateral withdrawal from territories that is taken over as a result of war, even if there is no consensus that the other side is willing to meet us. So you use it as an... It's a, you cannot... You have to mention so now it because people sandwich the withdrawal from southern Lebanon and Gaza as leading to the second Lebanon war and this, the whole idea in Israeli society that's been squashed that unilateral withdrawal is an actually a policy that could work. And I think it's also worth mentioning that in 2000 Israel offered the West Bank and Gaza to Yasser Arafat the Palestinian Authority right. in 2008. Israel offered the West Bank and Gaza Strip to Mahmoud Abbas the Palestinian Authority. And but we do, and, but we do not, and now we do have to recognize something. I think we, we have to move into settlements because we, the West Bank, and we have to admit, the West Bank is different, right? Or whatever, the West Bank, Yehud Shimon is different for the Jewish people because, and that's, and that is, I think, one of the reasons why we saw this huge uproar about 2334, the last security resolution that America is abstained from, which the world doesn't understand why. And the uproar is because Jerusalem is included in that. And the, the Yehud Shimon West Bank is seen differently by, by Jews and particularly by, Israeli. by Israelis and Jews all over the world, both. And particularly Jerusalem. Right. I, I, I mean, Jerusalem is way more of a consensus, I think, within the greater Jewish right. world and Israel than the entire West Bank. There is definitely but there Jerusalem is, a, is part of that of that well, territory. There's, there's, the no de- there's no debate in Israeli society that the whole city of Jerusalem is a part of sovereign Israel and it is our capital. And you cannot distinguish between the old city and other part of Israel. Like, well, there's a debate about Arab neighborhoods in East Jerusalem in Israel, but I don't think there's much of a debate over the old city. But even the, well, there were. I mean, uh, Ehud Olmert's plan for was was willing to internationalize kind of joint. Ehud Olmert offered up Israeli sovereignty and said, we don't need to be sovereign over the Temple Mount and the old city anymore if it means an end of the conflict. Right. So that's that's still not, it was not supported by Israeli, that idea was not. It's not a debate. No, 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 I don't think it's a debate. It may not be consensus. It's not a consensus within Israeli society. But the left in Israel doesn't want to divide Jerusalem. We we will have to Mm. in an end of peace, in in an end of conflict deal, Mm. but there's a consensus. Well, want to and think it's a good idea to are not the same thing. Right, right, no. Jerusalem is treated differently than Israeli society than the West Bank. It's in right, Jerusalem and that's, is and our that's capital city. The old city is the heart of it, um, and the rest of Judea and Samaria, while we have a claim to it, is treated differently. And that's what I was saying. That's why two four four three cut deep in Israeli society. Two three three four cut. Thank you. Cut deep in Israeli society because it didn't treat Jerusalem as different than the rest of Yehuda and Shimon. But let's get. But I think the settlement issue. Yeah. So why? Why does? Here's the question for the teacher's lounge. Why does Israel continue to build settlements and simultaneously at the same time over the last few decades has offered up to withdraw from the majority of the West Bank, withdrawing from most of the settlements if it means an end of the conflict? Why does it do it at the same time? 
Well, let's analyze the question from two perspectives. First, and this is again, I'm back to Schiffer's question, what makes people say that all Jewish occupants in the West Bank are doing something illegal? What makes the Israeli Supreme Court say that what they're doing is not illegal? Um, and we don't have to pick sides, but let's understand the legal issues. And then, assuming we have time, which I doubt, how, we'll discuss whether we think it's a good idea, a bad idea, or more, probably more fairly, and this is probably another podcast, why do people think it's a good idea or a bad idea? But let's, let's start with illegal. The source for the claim that it is illegal, which is, by the way, recognized by various international legal institutions, is Geneva the Fourth Geneva Convention with its rules about occupation. Can you? Resolution 49. Article 49. Article yeah. 49, sorry. Thank you. For Article 49. Why? What uh, well, basically, again, the Geneva Conventions are, are um, international agreements on essentially how you're going to wage war. And they start in the 19th century, and the fourth one is in post-World War II. And every time there's a major Geneva Convention, it's a response to um, effects of previous wars. So the fourth Geneva Convention is, is a response to World War II. And, and things that happened in World War II. Article 49 specifically relates to what happened. Well, hold on a second. Before we, even, but before we even get to that, I'm worried I'm going to start sounding like that Radiolab guy. <laughs> you know, the Radiolab podcast is always like, and then electricity. Wait a minute. What's electricity? I've never heard of that. But, I, but that's, that's what I'm doing. Uh, how does that make sense to make rules for war? I, I thought warfare is just people killing each other. How can nations get together and say, isn't war just defeat your enemy no matter what? Isn't that? Look, from t since time immemorial, people have said we've got to, you know, we've got to put structures to things. And war was part of those structures. We even know in the old Jewish tradition, there's, there's mitzvot, there are, there are commandments that are connected about how we're supposed to wage war and not wage war and how we, uh, you know, deal with civilian populations if we're allowed to cut down fruit trees or not. You know, all kinds of things. And, that has really continued throughout the generations, and countries have come together at different points throughout history and said, okay, we're going to wage war this way or that way. And, and if you don't use that way, then what happens? And if you don't use that way, you're going to be seen as you know, illegitimate, and sometimes it may be even forced, depending who you are. So, for instance, um, violations of the, Geneva the, third, the previous Geneva Conventions were the basis for the Nuremberg trials after after World War II to some degree. In other words... To some degree. To a certain extent, they had to make up laws for the Nuremberg trials yeah. after the war, Correct. which was legally Correct. contorted. But the idea is the same idea. Right. Right? The, the basic idea was the same idea, is that there are things you can legitimately do in war and there are things you can not legitimately do in war. Well, part of the idea for the, for the Geneva Convention agreements after World War II is we shouldn't have to make up the laws again after the war. Let's right. make them up before the war except so that, that we don't end up in the Nuremberg position. Except that we're continuously evolving because even the Geneva Conventions have Correct. evolved since then. But Again, the basis well, of it, we the more important thing about it is the basis of it is that it, it's, it, it's signatory countries. You're only bound by it if you say you're bound by it. You know, or, but or if you don't country. agree to it, then a lot of countries will consider you to be a rogue state or right. illegitimate. And, and or could potentially have sanctions, according right. to that. Potentially, but in Lavdavka, not necessarily. It's part of the international order, how, how we do things and right. get along. So after World War II, because of the effects on civilian populations, particularly Germany's transfer of different populations, Polish populations and whatnot, obviously Jews, and then moving others into them, the whole Lebensraum idea of, of Germany, of expanding its territory, um, they basically came up with Article 49, which says... That well, but doesn't it also ha do it relate to the fact that, that Germany itself was now being occupied by... The British, the Soviets, the Americans, and the French, and they, they have to create rules it for that. It protects the occupied. 
I think actually the big part of Article 49 is to prevent human suffering and to protect those that are living under an occupation. So it's as not well. just reflecting on what the Germans did wrong; it's making it's well. making demands on what the Allies should do right and taking care of the Germans. No. Okay. I don't know if it was specific I, I to the I Germans, but I don't it, remember ever reading anything that, uh, no, but about it's about pr- to that at the time. But it does protect those that are occupied. That's a big part of the law. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, what? I don't, I, but I let's get to the, the allies. Israel. I think you're giving the allies too much credit. I think, but okay. <laughs> We're getting into hardcore history now. We don't want to do that. Let's instead let's focus so on. It's, uh, it's a tangent. But, uh, let's just, again. What does? But what does that article say? That's what we're trying to get at. The article says essentially that. And uh, uh, an occupying power, meaning someone who conquers land in a military um, uh, conflict, cannot transfer populations, um, meaning they cannot transfer the set- and settle their population in the area or transfer populations out of that area. And that's certainly addressing things that are going on at the time because there is transfer going on even at that time. Um, and so that's why it becomes tricky, the question of the settlements. Um, what does it mean to transfer populations or not? So there, I have a, so let me I, see if I, I had and there's one, an argument. I, I'll quote my friend uh, Steve Klein on this, right? Dr. Steve Klein says very clearly, the, the military occupation of the West Bank is completely legal. Israel won that in a, in a, in a defensive war, and you're allowed to do that. And, and until we you know, make the negotiations to give it back, that's what happens. But the settlements themselves, that's problematic because that is, the, 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 that is a violation. So it's not actually the fact that we control that area. It's that we actually did start settling in that area. Is that another way of saying you've cleared the hurdle of UN 242, but you haven't cleared the hurdle of the Fourth Geneva Convention? Yeah, probably. Wait, can you clarify what you just said? Isn't Whose approach is that? That's an approach I would say with a... Because I don't a, hear that from the international community. No, that's a, it's an internal, I think, Israeli left, uh, more left uh, approach. Um, okay, that's what so I would call it. So, okay. so then the settlements are a problem, but the Israel's military presence in the West Bank is not a problem at all. Because until we, we negotiate, the, yeah, until we negotiate that issue out. I mean, so obviously, you win something in war, you occupy, you need to negotiate it out, figure out what you're going to do with that. So then, why does it, from the Israeli perspective, why do we have a legitimate right to then establish communities for our citizens in this territory? Well, before we get to legitimacy, let's question legality. So, if you're telling me that the idea of the Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 49, is that let's say when America occupied Iraq. After that war, they couldn't put its citizens there. They can't send. They can't build American towns and cities in Iraq outside of Mosul. But so then, what gives? But you can't compare the West Bank to Israel as the Iraq to America. But let's 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 take a, a, a quick. What's the legal distinction between uh, Jews building cities and towns in the West Bank and Americans building cities and towns in okay. Iraq? What's the legal? So here's number one. Where are the original Jewish? Um, Inhabitants, original Jewish kingdoms, communities, and where have they existed for the last 3,000 years? When was Tel Aviv established? Tel Aviv was established in 1909. Where are the first Jewish kingdoms? They're in places called Judea and Samaria. Have Jews lived in Judea and Samaria since there were ever Jews? The answer is yes. We have always had a connection to this territory. Well, that's certainly a principled argument, but is it a legally helpful argument in an international consensus of law? I, I think well, okay, then there's the, so once again, I think that is a consensus of the fact that our people have always lived there, and um, the Jewish people's recognition of it, having a national home has always been there. I think if you want to get to the, that argument in legal terms, sure, Balfour Declaration and British Mandate. British Mandate called for a national home for the Jewish people in all of Palestine, which included a territory which wasn't called that yet, but... Well, the Balfour the Declaration Bank. is not legally binding. No, but the, Bal- the but the British Mandate adopts the Balfour Declaration. The British Mandate was ratified by which the Which is adapted by the League of Nations. 
world, which is what 56 countries ratified it in the League of Nations. So technically, according to international law, they recognize the Jewish people's connection to the entirety of what was the British Mandate of Palestine, encourage Jewish immigration to that place, which includes what is now the West Bank, to establish a Jewish government there, which was eventually the Jewish agency, which turned into Israel. So we have a long legal argument to have communities there in the West Bank. And we had Jewish communities there before 1948. Why, why was uh, Lone Schwut and... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me see. So why, why are you quoting to me Balfour Declaration and League of Nations? I have the partition plan, which did not give that land to... Well, let me see if I understand Benji correctly. We accept the partition plan, though. But it wasn't accepted by the other side. That, that's not legally binding. Let's, let's stay... Right now, also we're staying... True. We're just staying within the legal... Are you, uh, by the way, this is something that the Supreme Court of so Israel has ruled on. But you're di- wait, to Alan's point, what's important for you, and I agree, is that there are certain things that are binding and certain things that are not binding. So the British mandate was 100% based on the international system 100 years ago, binding. Partition plan, General Assembly, not binding. So and now how is that going to affect the legal question? Because we always talk and, about partition. And, and partition plan was also... Not only is it binding, it was rejected by the by the Palestinian that's side. That's important to me. The, the, the League the of Nations. Side, the, Arab Arab side. That, the law may not be the most important part, but that's the part we're talking about. Right. So the so the league, the fact that the partition plan um, is not a binding resolution and is rejected by the Arab side. So it, so we go it back. To, okay, who was the last? Who was the last legal? owner of that land. That's what it goes back to. The last legal owner of that land was the mandate for Palestine, which was uh, which was um, operated by the British authorities. And the whole point of that mandate for Palestine was to create a Jewish home, a Jewish national home in that land. That was the whole point of it. So therefore, you go back to who, was the, who owns that land. You, there's no way what the Palestinians the- can claim legal ownership as an entity. I'm not talking about private Palestinians who own deeds to particular lands. As a national entity, the Palestinians cannot claim that that land is theirs. Well, I think we also need to take a step back before that. Part of the reason I think that it's, 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 it's not a, a, a helpful analogy to talk about the U.S. and Germany or the U.S. in Iraq is that when the U.S. conquered those nation states, they were conquering nation states. When Israel conquered the West Bank in 1967, it was not taking land that was legally recognized by international law from any nation state. Right, we already said that. Jordan illegally annexed the West Bank, and only Britain and Pakistan recognized Jordan's presence there as legal. So so the, the Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 49, which talks about if, if Entity A conquers land from Entity B, here are its responsibilities to help Entity B reestablish itself. There was no entity B legally by international law when Israel took over the West Bank. There was only undefined territory. Its last definition was the League of Nations mandate in Palestine, which said all of this territory is for Jewish settlement. Right. And and then we go back to what Ben was saying about the historical connection to the land and all those that, that have legal precedents. That have legal precedents. And, of course, there was no – again, what we said before earlier about the Geneva Convention is that, that the Geneva Convention applies when you have – everybody agrees to it. There was no other party that was agreeing to it. It was a, a party in terms of the – uh, well, I don't think that matters. If, if, if Jordan doesn't sign on to the Geneva Convention and Israel does, matter. I'm saying let's say that matters. Yeah, yeah, that's very clear because the, the Geneva Conventions itself say it's, it's an agreement between signatories of this agreement. Right. You're getting very legal though, Alan. 
but that's the conversation. Yeah, that's true. I think I think uh, in Afghanistan, the United States didn't necessarily feel bound by. Correct. You're not yeah. bound by it, but when you're fighting, well, that's the whole problem of modern warfare. Because what if that can Hamas, who's not illegally binding, you know, they never signed a Geneva Convention after that, and then they do completely illegal, you know, illegitimate things. And no one well, that's what's missing. Standard. So then, how does a country that wants to hold up? How do they fight? How well, do we need fight? a set of no. rules for that, and nobody's ever gotten around to do that. They just yell at Israel for not. Right. Following but the rules the for yeah. By, by the way, that that was not the only uh, argument. So so far, we have one of the pillars of the Supreme Court's uh, Israeli Supreme Court's argument for why Jewish settlements are legal. One of them is that we did not conquer land from a sovereign state. We conquered land that had no definition. The only remaining definition that it had from the past, which is. I guess it's reason number two, was the League of Nations, which said Jews can live there. So by international consensus, the last agreed-upon thing was that Jews can live there. Therefore, the Fourth Geneva Convention does not apply. Why else did they say the Geneva Convention doesn't apply? Um, like there's no uh, Israel did not force transfer. Uh, Israel's interpretation of it again. Those who believe it were not in, in violations. There was no the, the. It's talking about forced transfer of populations. Israel first of all did not transfer any Palestinians out of the area, uh, other than those who ran away during the initial war. Um, so never transferred out populations to move in Israeli populations. Israelis moved there by choice, not by government fiat. At, right, and Israelis themselves were not forced into there. They chose to live there. Um, well, so what about when the government incentivizes it? But again, but it's forced. The interpretation is they're talking about forced transfer. That, that happened during World War II. The Geneva Convention doesn't talk about that. But and some people like to say... Oh, it could be a bad idea. You could be against the Israeli policy of settlement building but in the West Bank. We're, we're not legal scholars, aren't there? But there are lots 100%. of people that say the settlements are a violation of the fact that we Israel transferred its population into the West Bank. So we didn't force the population to move there, not at all. But when your taxes in Efrat are cheaper than my taxes here because it one's over the green line and one's not, that looks to me a little fishy. I don't think, they are, fishy, I don't think right? they are anymore. They're not. No, but I, I'm saying in no, a devil's No, I agree with you. But, uh, but, again, but again, listen. That's what people say. The way law works is legal experts can debate how to interpret that law. So that's what it is. It's the, the conclusion okay. I'm getting. I'm asking what is, the, what is the Israeli Supreme Court's interpretation about why the Israeli government considers itself not in violation. There is, there is one more. There is one more. Uh, so let's, let's be more explicit about the fourth reason, which is? There's no displacement of Palestinians from their towns. Rather, if you look at even the population numbers from 67 until today, it's gone up from like a million to like two and a half million, depending on obviously the demographers that you source. But Israel hasn't displaced any Palestinians. Their towns have just grown and gotten bigger. So they haven't. The fact is, despite what you may hear, Israelis have not taken Palestinians, torn them from their homes, and given those homes to Israelis. On the contrary, They've either found places where Jews were living before and resettled Jews there, or found empty land and built new Jewish towns and cities. And, and that's part of the controversy of the of the settlements of those about four thousand um, units that are in dispute now, which happened with Amona we talked about before. Of those that are built on um, claims of private Palestinian land, right? So that that those are litigated in Israel. Right. So, well, that's not a sovereignty issue. That's an ownership exactly. issue. If you've taken Palestinian land, the state of Israel will throw you out. Right. And so you should not. And you, so you shouldn't confuse Supposedly. that with this idea of. You shouldn't confuse that with this idea of transfer. Right? So you need to... Uh, the you, you need don't encroach on Palestinians. By the way, so I want to push back a little bit on that. Because I think the other argument is is that 
that Palestinians have not been able to have natural growth and they're stuffed into very small areas um, because they're not able to naturally expand. If you look at pictures of the city of Nablus, we have these in our presentations. Right, where what it looked like in '67 and what it looks like today, it's definitely grown. Obviously, it's definitely grown, but it's being grown in a very defined area because they don't have access to the whole span. Right, like you're, you're, you're asking a bigger question, which is, can, should the, the Israeli government is laying infrastructure for more Jewish settlement in the West Bank, which is problematic if the goal is to make it the the place for a Palestinian state. If it's that, not, yeah, it should be at least investing as much in building an infrastructure that's for that's a Palestinian right. state. That's not, it's infrastructure and also amount, right, in terms of the density of a place, right, and the density of places that they were. But, that's, but, the, but again, just to go back to Schiffer's question, that isn't a legal question. No, but I'm saying that, that that one, I think, makes the argument in terms of the, the displacement of Palestinians. In other words, that, that when you get into those arguments of that, they're, they're not, we say, oh, we haven't displaced them, they can live there, they can do what we want, but we're actually binding them in into where they can live and not giving them... Um, which may at, at most go against the spirit of the Article 49 of Geneva Convention, but I don't know that that's, that's not a legal issue. No, In other words, spirit is, uh, is definitely legal issues. That's what we're arguing about, really. That's the ultimate argument about Geneva, that convention is the spirit of the law because it doesn't really address our issue. And, th- and that's the problem, that the legal frameworks are vague enough. The Israeli Supreme Court can make it, it, its, its arguments. Other international courts can make other arguments. And we can argue back and forth all day and all night about the legality of it. But that I, I honestly don't think that's the productive conversation. And when people start with that as a shutdown to conversation about what Israel should do, and as Benji's pointing out, what Palestinians should do. The, the legal issues. <laughs> yeah. But let's, the big problem is, well, Israel has one approach to it from a legal perspective, and the whole world is a completely different approach. Not the whole world. No, but the international consensus, our greatest friends in the international community, basically say are against our approach to the Geneva Convention and to... No, no, no. They're against our building settlements. The the United States does not say the settlements are illegal. Yes, they do. The Obama administration used the term illegal. That that all Jewish settlements are illegal? 100%. And in East Jerusalem, that was Resolution 2334. Uh, which they abstained from, but the Obama administration has used that language, and they condemned every single time a Jewish apartment was. I know they illegal. condemned it, but they, so they did used it illegal. They did what? A few recently, a hundred percent. It was a change. We can check I could be wrong, but yeah, no, show no, me, no, show no, me no, where no, they said that all I'm Jewish. No, but I think this is a, to kind of. I have to jump out, but to kind of conclude. Um, no, is this is I think Alan's point. What he said in the beginning is the paradigm shift is in, rather we're talking about different interpretations of international law, but look, try and understand where the Israelis are coming from, and no one seems to care. No one seems to care our approach, which is our narrative, which is, well, we see it as Judea and Samaria, not the West Bank. Well, maybe take a second to see, well, why is it Judea and Samaria, and why is East Jerusalem not illegally occupied, but part of our capital? Well, I would say it a little bit differently. I would say that the, the legality issue is used as a shutdown to prevent Jews from talking about their their side of the dispute and instead of instead of doing that say look the israelis have their legal defenses like it or don't like it the question is do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea but understand why israel is doing what it's doing don't delegitimize israel don't demonize israel don't hold israel to a double standard 
But understand that there's two sides in this debate, and both sides have a role in the dispute, and both sides have a role in resolving the dispute. And since Israel has gone out of its way to try to extricate itself from this situation, it is now, I think, incumbent upon the Palestinians to play their part in extricating themselves from this complication. I think there's still an elephant in the room, which we haven't really talked about yet, is we know why Israel builds settlements, but if it's really, what people say, if it's a real partner for peace, why do they keep doing it if that territory is supposed to belong to someone else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is the conversation, and and it's a conversation. I think we should have that conversation. Yeah, it'll be a different podcast, obviously, but that's that's, that's the criticism. And agree or disagree, I think that's a legitimate conversation. I don't think that's an anti-Israel conversation. I just think uh, I think it has been a very productive. I hope people found this um, clarifying and not uh, and not confusing. Um, definitely for a but, foundation uh, for more questions. Yeah, but uh, well, obviously settlements is a big issue that we'll have to come back to as 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 the international community does and Israel does and as Israel this week. Uh, approved 2,500 more units. Um, so uh, everybody should have a I get more neighbors. Yeah. So we're very happy for the feedback. We try to be as responsive as we can to questions and comments from you guys. Please continue to do so. And just another sort of housekeeping note, for those of you who are unaware, my friend Noam Shapiro has made us a Facebook page where if you are not a student or former student of the program, you can still access the podcast and be aware of updates. So look for the Teacher's Lounge podcast page on Facebook and uh, that way you can keep updated with what it is we're doing. We're signing off for now for a conversation that obviously will have to be continued in the future. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Benji. Big calf. We missed you. And there's my wife, Dara. Hi, Dara. She's waving. And uh, till next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.